Now, if you're the kind that's sort of like, you know, what we like to go through uh, New Testament stuff and learn about Jesus, you know, sometimes the sequel is so, well, it's always going to be richer if you understand the, the first uh, the first book as well. So read along with me, if you would, please. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the, old, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. I mean, you can't really say that nice, can you? Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, says, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather... <clears throat> The congregation together speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock twice. With his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the children spoke to Moses and Aaron. I'm sorry, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Because you did not believe me, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land in which I've given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord. And he was hollowed among them thus. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that's befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, how we dwelt in Egypt for a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Chor. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses on Aron by Mount Hor, by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land in which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. Strip Aaron of his garments, put them on Eliezer, his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron thirty days. You pray with me, please. God, thank you so much for the blessing of the time now that you give us. Oh God, please bless this time. Please minister profoundly in it. God, thank you. Thank you for the way you're going to speak. Lord, overcome every language barrier, culture barrier, sin barrier, hard-heartedness barrier, stubbornness barrier, distraction barrier, ADD barrier, whatever it would be. So that every one of us hears directly from you today. I mean, God, that we would genuinely hear your voice and that your word would burst open and come alive for each of us. God, that you would minister in such a way that every one of us would hear you. I mean, hear you and know you. So God, I pray if there are any who have yet to say yes to you, let this be the day of their salvation. If there are any who have said yes but are struggling, let this be the time of their peace. They're strengthening, their clarion call, their clarity. Lord, for those who are complacent, challenge us to action. For those who are unruly, warn us rightly so. But Lord, don't leave us alone. And if there's anyone struggling with whether you're even there, oh God, in this time through your word, now make yourself really clear that you're here. So, Lord, have your way. We commit this time now, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and do through me what I cannot humanly do, that every one of us will be personally spoken to, that our minds and our hearts and our ears would go, oh, my goodness, that's just for me. And that today we would be revolutionized as you intend. So we commit every second of this to you. Redeem every second, I pray. And may we have so much fun in your word now, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Now, let's kind of put things into perspective. Back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, Israel was given a promise that they were to cash in on. A promise for land that God had planned for them. He had removed them from the land of Egypt. They had gone through the wilderness. And they had been. the, the whole goal was to get them into a place of fruitfulness. It wasn't just to remove you from bondage, but it was to take you from bondage to fruitfulness. There's this place in between where God starts to spartan out your life. Things get really barren so that you can really learn that He really is what you need. Now understand, unless God removed a major portion of what's in your life, you'll never know that He really is what you need. How will you know that God is the one who satisfies the cravings in your soul unless you're aware of those cravings and you're not really able to find satisfaction? So understand what God has done in chapters 13 and 14 is brought them to this place called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea means the sanctuary of the wanderer. 
And unfortunately, to this point, it's just been Kadesh. That's the word for sanctuary. And the people are in a place where they really, really need to find the sanctuary in the Lord and not just in a place. And so at that place, they do see the testimony of the spies that the land is good, that everything God said the land was is true. The land is of abundant and giant fruitfulness, but it is also a place of battle. And without faith that God will fight that battle, you'll spend your whole life never stepping forward. And so a generation turns and complains again. Oh, you don't care. God doesn't care about our people. He doesn't care about our children. He just left us out here to die. Woe is me. That's the idea. I guess I'll show you how much I love your children. They'll get in. You won't. So for 40 years, they're going to wander around in a death march. And as they wander around in a death march, what's going to happen ultimately is that they're going to then find themselves, really, they're going to find themselves a whole new people to go in. Now, please understand, the Bible tells us that we are born spiritually dead. Now, as much as you like it or not, we are spiritually still born. We may have a hunger for things, but nobody, according to Scripture, nobody really craves God. They crave the things of God, and if they can get them anywhere else, they will. That's why things are marketed the way they are. The things of God, peace, joy, love, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the things that God even promises that are very fruit of His own Holy Spirit, those are things that they try to bottle up or they try to put on, a, on an ad somewhere and you buy them with 300 uneasy payments. And by the time we're done, by the time we're still finishing paying it off, we don't like it by the time we're in the middle of paying it off. And I've learned that's the way the enemy works. The goods come up front and you spend the rest of your life paying for it. On the other side of it, there's a God who says, listen, that the, the, the things in you that you're craving can only be found not just from me, but in me. And you hear the difference? Because many, many of us as Christians could forget that. That we kind of go to God as if he was the great cosmic general store. And so it's like, God, I need some peace. You can see Jesus going, okay, please pull forward and say in Jesus' name. You know, that kind of thing. And by the time we're done, like that's what we want. It's like as if Jesus, well, here's a little peace. But Jesus says, I am your peace. We read that God is love. And you understand that Jesus wants to give us these things, but even more so, he wants to be them. So, so please hear me out. I remember reading this the first time when I was a really young Christian and looking at it and going, wow, okay, that's kind of like the church. You know, there's some people that all they want to do is go back to Egypt. And there's some that all they really want is the promised land. And then the majority who don't even know what in the world they're doing there in the first place. And so the Lord pulled me aside and he says, Tony, that's you. There's a part of you that craves my very best. I mean, craves it. There's a part of you that always kind of looks back and goes, what was back there again? And there's a part of you, to these days, a little bit more than normal, that doesn't even know what in the world he's doing. And when I looked at it that way, this whole thing looked so different. Because I realized that there's a difference between being pulled out of your bondage and being in a place where now the world gets affected and blessed and touched by you, but the place in between that old man has to die. And that's what Romans taught me. That old generation, the person that had the old motives and the old priorities and the old value systems, those things have to die. But please understand, the reason they have to die is because God has a whole new thing. See, the difference between Jesus and anything else is that my God's a God of resurrection, but you can't have resurrection without death. There's nothing to resurrect unless something's died. And understand, unless your hands are free from the thing you're holding on to, you'll never actually be able to receive the thing that God really wants to put in them. You could be holding on to something so utterly worthless that in the end of it all, 
You're, 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 in the end of it, you have this rubbish in your hands that never saved you, never could. When God had so much more. Now, please hear me. In this chapter, it's a chapter where there's death, and there's a lot of it. Well, it's a lot of it because it's two very prominent characters. And please understand, if we could kind of approach this chapter this way, there's four basic events. I don't know if you've noticed in the chapter. There's only really four basic events that take place. And what's interesting is the bookends of it are these two deaths. In the first portion, by the way, for what it's worth, there is that section where we see where we see this Miriam die. Now, by the way, how many verses does it show us or do we get dedicated to Miriam's death? One. She gets one verse. How's that? And then we have the issue with this water from the rock at Meribah. That's verses 2 through 13. That's our second section. Then our third section is verses 14 through 21, where we're dealing with Edom not letting us through, right? And then in the last section, chapters, verses 22 through 29, we see the death of Aaron. Now understand, it appears to me because the term your brother versus one of your brothers or your sister versus one of your sisters, it appears to me that there really were only three kids in this household. Well, there are going to be more we see in regards to the list of it, but they really seem to be very tightly knit group of people. And so please hear me in this. Somewhere in this, I start looking and going, okay, well, we have this Miriam that dies, and then Moses deals with this issue where he gets so bitter that he strikes the rock twice. And then you have this issue with Edom, but he calls Edom his brother. And then his brother dies. And I go, oh, wait a minute, what if we split this thing in half? In the first part, we have this, this woman, and her name is Mariam, and Mariam means bitter or bitterness. And I see this gal named Bitter, and then I see him acting in bitterness as he then strikes the rock twice. And then I see him calling on these guys as if they were his brothers. And then I watch his brother die, and I get it. You see, if I'm really going to go to the place God intended, there's some things I've got to be willing to let die in my life. Now, let's look at the verses with me, if you would, please. Now, by the way, back in Numbers 14, we read that when they actually did try to fight when God told them not to, it's interesting, he said, don't fight. He said, fight and they won't. Then he says, don't fight and then they will. They were driven back to a place called Hormah, and Hormah means devoted or secluded. And now we read in verse chapter 20, verse 1, that the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin, which, by the way, means to prick or a crag, in the first month, and stayed then in Kadesh. Now, Kadesh, again, is this place where they were the last time when they didn't enter the land. It was originally called, apparently, En Mishpat. That's from Genesis 14:7. And En Mishpat, by the way, means judgment. It was the place where the battle of Sodom and the kings took place, where Abraham and his 318 trained servants had to go rescue his nephew Lot. Of course, it's the place where the spies were sent. And it's an 11-day journey from, by way of Mount Seir, from Horeb, or Mount Sinai, to this place. Now, notice we only got one verse about this gal dying. Now, understand, we do have a little bit of a background. So here it is. We don't read, by the way, how she died. We don't read in regards to any protocol, ritual, or regalia in regards to... We don't even read whether Moses and Aaron are actually there when she died. But what's interesting was, if you remember last chapter, the whole thing was on how to deal with what happens when someone dies. 
So God spent a whole chapter going, now, when someone dies, there's some things you need to do to protect yourself, to clean yourself, to kind of make sure that you're not being contagious. And then after all of that, then he brings us to this situation where, and, and understand there's often a situation where God will instruct you. And then as God instructs you, you think, okay, everything's really cool. And then, it's, and then all of a sudden you realize that that instruction really was for you after all. And it's so easy when you hear God's instruction to go, oh, I wish that person could have heard that, or I wish that person could have heard it. But God's like, I have you here for a reason. I want you to listen to this. And then you never know what's around the corner here where God's going to actually have you play it out. Now, this is one of those situations. God says, when you touch dead things, this is the rituals you need to go through to keep yourself clean and not infect anyone else. You can see Moses and Aaron going, gotcha, gotcha, and then Miriam dies. Now, what's interesting in all of this is when we read Aaron dying, they'll mourn 30 days. When Moses dies, they'll mourn 30 days. How many days did they mourn for Miriam? We don't read that they mourn at all. I wonder what kind of gal she was. Well, this is what we do know a little bit about her. She was introduced in essence in Exodus 2 when Moses was put as a little baby in an ark, if you remember, sent down the, the rushes. And it was the little sister when the Pharaoh's daughter sees this thing, says, do you want me to find somebody that can nurse this child? Winds up taking Moses to his mother, by the way. So she was part of that. So she was, in essence, the presenter. She was also the prophetess because in Exodus 15, when Moses then starts to sing, about this great victory that God has done by swallowing up the enemy in the Red Sea, it says, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand with the women and went out with her and with timbrels and dances. So she was a prophetess. She was clearly a praiser because in the next verse we read, then she starts to, to, in essence, do a call and response. Moses starts to sing something and she sort of sings it back. You know, the Lord has triumphed victoriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. But the last time we saw her wasn't so hot. See, the last time we saw her was back in Numbers chapter 12. And in Numbers chapter 12, it was Miriam who brought with her brother and basically said to Aaron, to Moses, who died and made you boss? See, Moses had married an Ethiopian woman. And by the way, God never condemns marrying an Ethiopian woman unless, of course, she really has no interest in the living God. The issue was never your race. The issue is really who you, who your relationships. Praise God for that. Aren't you thankful that God didn't say, I want everyone to marry somebody within four centimeters of their height? Within, you know, within three kilos of their weight? Within one shade of their, whatever, their skin tone? See, because understand the outside is really, that's man's business. Because it says man looks at the outer appearance, but it's the Lord who looks at the heart. And on the inside, we all kind of look the same. Nope, some of us may have a little bit more space. Some of us may have a little bit more clotting or a little bit more wear and tear, a few more road miles, but we all bleed the same color. So when Miriam starts to pop up with this, who do you think you are? God will ultimately have her be leprous. She'll have to be thrown out of the camp, and they can't leave until she's brought back in. That was the last time we saw her. And we haven't heard much from her since until now when she dies. But what's interesting is God then saddles that with this next issue. He will use that as an, as an example, by the way, for what it's worth. Now, please hear me. When God puts a person in charge, he doesn't put them in charge because often they're the best in regards to qualifications or the most brilliant or the most talented. Have you learned that yet? Have you ever had to work for a boss that was just a complete nincompoop? Now, if their boss is in this room, don't nod. just want to make sure we don't cause any trouble here. 
the Lord will put, him in, put you in places where your boss really does know less or seems to be less apt or whatever the case is so that you can show that you can trust God. Say, so you know what? I can trust him. Hey, and here's the funnier thing. Sometimes, gals, you married a man who becomes a complete oaf after you married him. Let me warn you, he was probably an oaf beforehand. Otherwise, you made him that because the only difference is you. So, you know, and then you're like, oh, my goodness, the guy is such a whatever. Well, can I just encourage you, beloved? Trust God because God is still and will always be bigger. But any of you ever lost? How many of you here have, have actually, if, if I can dare ask this, how many of you here have actually lost a brother or a sister. Any of you in here? Other than me? Okay. You know, there's a part of you that if, when, you, when they do pass away, there's a part of you that kind of goes, well, when am I next? Especially when you realize they're getting old and that's the reasons, in essence, that they're passing away. And I wonder if Moses is starting to roll that through in his mind. Flip through sort of that nostalgia. The problem is, is that life goes on even in the middle of this. And unfortunately for Moses and Aaron, life is not so full of daisies and sunflowers and everything is awesome songs. The next thing we read is that the people start going after it with them again. There was no water for the congregation, verse 2. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron. By the way, they've done that in 15, 16, 17, all three chapters of Exodus, and then Numbers 12, 14, 16, uh, including his own brother and sister. Moses has had it. People have complained about them, about water being bitter in a place called Mara, which means bitter, like Mariam, chapter 15. They asked, what will we eat in chapter 16? They complained there because there was no water in Exodus 17. They complained, obviously, Miriam and Aram because Moses had married an Ethiopian woman. Because of the report of giants in Numbers 14, they had a problem with his leadership, the people, in chapter 16. And then they said, you killed the people of the Lord because they stood against him and God responded. Moses' life has been one of dealing with the people that are quick to complain. Maybe you're in that situation. Where you're following or you're, you've been, you feel like you're responsible for a group of people that are... are can you, does this make sense? They're not happy unless they're not happy. And yet in all of this, their response tells us a little bit about what the problem is. Look at verse 3. The people contended, and the idea of that, I mean, when you think of contended, you think of like a couple guys with like, you know, those long kind of silky shorts on and boxer boots and their gloves on. I'm ready to contend. That's kind of the idea here. It's like they crawled into the ring and on one side is Moses. And on this side, there's Moses and Aaron, 120 and 123 years old. And on this side, two million other people. You know, that's kind of the situation here. When you feel like the world's against you, in this case, Moses would kind of feel like that. But what's interesting is, listen to what they said. If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. When did that happen? Well, that just happened a couple chapters ago, if you remember, when the people stood against Moses and God opened up the ground, swallowed them up, and then fire came and plague came to deal with all of these people who were sort of these big, sort of sassy, cheeky people against God's calling. And what was interesting in all of that is the people just looked back one season. That's all they looked back at. When was the last time a whole bunch of people died? This was at all. Too bad I didn't die then. What's interesting is that's actually consistent. In Exodus 16, when he brought them across the Red Sea and there wasn't, you know, and they started to realize that God had to show them hunger and thirst and how he was going to meet it, the people said, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord back in the land of Egypt. That was the last thing they had. And then you take them a little farther to Numbers 14, and then they said, oh, if we had died in the land of Egypt, and then 
or if only we had died in the wilderness. And understand, there's something dangerous about this, because please hear me. This is something that happens to us. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, here's what happens. Somewhere down the line, you say yes to the Lord, and he says, come on, let's go. I'm going to take you someplace. And the place he takes you is going to be better, but it's not best, or we would stop there. So he takes you there, and you're kind of like, well, there's some pros and cons, but before it was all cons, now there's a little bit of pros, and there's some, there's some still things that are kind of funky about this. God goes, good, I don't want this to be perfect because this isn't your permanent place. This is just a stop along the way. And then God says, let's go. And you're like, no, I don't want to go because this is good enough. And God's like, God's not a good enough kind of God. Have you learned that yet? God's awesome. And if you're kind of living with a good enough God, you got the wrong one. This isn't about, oh, oh, maybe. And we ask God, oh, God, can I just please just let me just not live in misery for the rest of my life, you know? And, and it's like, really? Do you really think that's what God wants? As your father? Do you want to go to your dad and say, Dad, can I just not live in misery? Is that where we're at? So what happens is the Lord pulls you out of that spot, but you're always kind of looking back and there's a part of you that gets left there going, you know, that wasn't so bad. And you might have, you might have whined like a smashed cat, but the moment you start removing from it, it becomes a lot cooler than it was when you were there. Does that make sense? You start moving and you're like, oh, you know, that wasn't so bad after all, because now everything is unfamiliar. And that means I have to exercise faith. And, you know, and now it's like, I don't, I really, I'm, I'm not strong enough or cute enough or brilliant enough. I don't have any of that to go for. What I have at this point, I just have to trust God. And I don't know if I like that. I mean, I tell people I like that, but I don't like that because if God fails, I'm really going to be, I'm going to be done. And then he takes us to another place where I'm like, oh, you're right, God. Why did I ever complain? This is better. You're right. And God goes, well, good. Now catch your breath and let's move on. You're like, move on. What do you mean? This is better. And God goes, I'll wait. And you know what? While he waits, you get restless. Have you learned that? You get restless and you get uncomfortable. It's like the Lord's like lighting something underneath your bottom. He's just kind of lighting it, letting it get hotter and hotter. And you're kind of pretending like nothing's happening. You're kind of scooting around a little bit. Sooner or later, you're like, okay, I'm up. And he goes, let's go. Where? God's like, I'm not going to tell you. I'm your way. And I get that. If, if you're in a situation like you're in the Himalayas, and Hugo is this gifted Himalayan... Oh, I shouldn't do that. I'm not, I should, not that I want to exclude you. I should pick Jay, because he's kind of near the Himalayas, right? Because he's Nepalese. So, here it is. So, let's say that Jay wants to take us and walk us through the Himalayas. And Jay's like, look it, I need you to trust me. I'm going to lead you through this. But the problem is he's got people like Lucas with him. Lucas is kind of like an antelope with ADD. So he wants to jump everywhere, right? And so he's just like, what's this squirrel? And he's looking at me, he's jumping all over the place, right? And Jay's like, look it, the path is going to narrow. It's a dangerous, it's a narrow, and it's a rough path. And Lucas is going to ask a question like, so what's next? Where are we going? Where are we going? If Jay told him, he would find a way around Jay to it. Does that make sense? If Jay told him he'd go, oh, well, I can go around you now to get there. Why doesn't God tell us sometimes? Because he doesn't want us going around him to get there. So what Jay says is, I'm your way. Keep your eyes on me. I'm your way. And Lucas is like, I don't like that. I don't have to wait. I don't have to walk in his path. Now I can't just jump. Squirrel! Right? And, you, and like, that's what happens, right? And, as, and what happens is the Lord starts slowing us down. And one of the reasons is because when he starts slowing us down, we go, oh, wow, this is actually really pretty. 
I wouldn't have noticed that if I was busy getting there. And Jay knows. He knows when you can catch your breath and when you need to. He knows when you need to make oxygen choices. He knows all of that stuff because he's an experienced guide in that. But theoretically, this is all hypothetical. Don't try to get Jay to do that unless it's for real. You can ask him later. But when he starts and he stops someplace, and you're like, this is a beautiful bluff. Have you ever like tried to go, any of you have ever hiked up hills and you think this is clearly the top? And then you get there and you're like, dang it. Right? This isn't the top at all. And then you go a little bit more and like, oh, that's clearly it. No. And then you get to that point where like, is there ever a top to this thing after all? When we had our men's conference, you knew I was going to go there, didn't you? And they had this place called Worm's Head. Right? And it's like, oh, it looked kind of cool. It should be easy. Come on, I'm with a bunch of guys. And every guy's like, they, they look like, I, I, I could have strapped like horns on these guys. They could look like Vikings. They were all like big and buff and athletes. But they were like, hey, you give it. And I'm like, it's the older guys. They're like, come on, let's go. And you're like hiking over this thing. And you get to the, to the other end of it. It's like this little straggle thing of that kind of opens up when the tide goes out. And then you get to the other side and you have to climb up to the top of it. And as you're kind of climbing, you're like, come on, guys. I mean, there's one guy, he's like, his ankles hanging out, you know. He's like, Panting like anything, like I could do it, I could do it. It's the big guys are like, I don't want to go any farther. And I just started feeling like Moses in that moment, you know. Kind of, come on, guys, you wait till we get to the top, and then you know we'd get part of the way, and they're like, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? No, I don't know. And then like, I don't know where the top is. It'll get, we'll get there. We finally got there, and everyone like laid out and passed out and cried, and well, or whatever. And we finally like, all right, let's take a pictures to prove we were here. You know that. And how many times does the Lord just pull us and we're like, this is good enough, this is good enough, this is good enough. And that's where these people are. The only difference is it's like a melodrama. So it's like, if only we had died. You know, that's what's going on here, right? But have you ever done anything that stupid? You don't have to answer, but maybe you wouldn't have said it, but you said it in your heart. You're like, you know, okay, that was a horrible relationship, but it's better than being lonely. And God's like, no, it's not. You're like, no, 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 really. God, can I have him back? God's like, are you insane? You're like, but I'm lonely. And God goes, I'm here. And you're like looking around going, there's just nobody at all to be with, right? And God's like, I died to be with you. And you're like, you'd rather be with that loser who did all that stuff, who had no interest in God and all that. And here I am, I'm perfect. And you're looking right past me. And that's where these people are. To be sad about it is, that's why this generation has to die, because that's why we have to die there. Because this bitterness has to die. Now, what's interesting is, when bitterness dies, you don't need a funeral. You don't need to have a big protocol and have this big thing and set up some candles and a little beanie baby you bury in the backyard or something. You don't need any of that. The bottom line is, that when bitterness, like when you say, God, kill the bitterness in me, all that is is, by the way, that's just rebellion against forgiveness. That's what it is. God's like, I want to forgive Like, I can't forgive them. Jesus is like, I can and I live inside of you. I can forgive anyone through you. I just need you to surrender and follow me. Where? Are we going through that again? So these people are like, oh, if only we had died back there or in Egypt or in the wilderness or when God killed the last batch of people, it would be so much better to die than to keep living. God's like, hey, look, if I thought you were done, and he's counted our breaths, aren't you thankful he hasn't said, 
you have 3,412 left. You'd be like, one, two. How many of you would, you do, that? would do that? The reason he doesn't tell us is because he really wants us to live so when the last breath is spent, it's done. And you spent it well. I want my last breath to be like, yeah. We've joked about it and said, I hope I die at the pulpit, but it's not about when God smites the sinner. Anyway. Verse 4 says, And why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? Notice the you in all of this. And now, by the way, can I remind you that the Lord led them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day? I mean, and that means that it must still be there. So here they are yelling about, you let them hear us. You let us hear to this horrible place. You let us hear. You know, you're the Christian and I said yes to Jesus and I'm just trying to follow you. And you're like, no, you know, you're, you're all messed up here. And I want, meanwhile, the pillar's there for you to look at as if somehow you're ignoring the pillar while you're saying you did all this. So the pillar's going to have to pop down and make a, make a house call here. Why have you... And then notice they start... And see, this is the second generation that's starting to rise up. But we'll learn, by the way, is by the time that Aaron dies, it's the 40th year. So we're at the end of the wandering while this is happening. That means this is the second generation. The first generation, it was like, you know, we really don't like this stuff. And they're, can part and I say they're a little bit more British. And now all of a sudden, the second generation's American. And here's the difference. The first generation's sort of like, oh, well, we're not very fond of this bread. Oh, this place is not very nice. Second generation's like, we hate this place! This is an evil place! You hear the difference? And that's where they're at. I mean, but they sat there, they're like, we hate this loathsome bread. I mean, what does that sound like? Us. So Moses and Aaron did the wise thing. They got away from the people and they fell on their face. At 120 and 123, they fell on their face in the hot, hot sand. And I guess they could get up. We read that Moses never lost his vivacity. There's a 120-year-old guy that would have dropped down and done more push-ups than we could have. That would have been very embarrassing. But when people are starting to rattle like this on, the easiest thing to do is to sit and listen and then, dare I say it, take all of that with you. You go to bed with all of those condemnations. Wow, what did I do? I was just trying to disciple. I was just trying to reach out. But they went and they fell on their faces before the tabernacle like they should. And when somebody just rips up one side of you and down the other and they start flipping out on you because you love Jesus and they were trying to, but they were actually not trying to follow the Lord, they were trying to follow you, that's always a dangerous road to be on. Then fall on your face before the Lord like, he, like they do. The Lord spoke to Moses at this point. Now, the people are thirsty. That's reasonable. Have you learned that the people never go to God? Nowhere in the Scripture do we ever read, by the way, that the people are like, you know, God, we're thirsty. They just go to, to Moses and say, what's wrong with you? So they're there with their face before God. The glory comes down. Now, traditionally, it seems like God comes down like a cloud, fills the tabernacle, or comes and appears in a way that they can see. So the people get to hear God speak, and he says, take the rod you and your brother Aaron, and gather the congregation together. That's the same rod that became a snake, that turned water to blood, that brought frogs and lice and thunder and hail and fire and locusts, divided the Red Sea, had victory over Amalek when it was raised, and more recently was budded with blossoms and blooms and almonds, which is kind of a fun thought. Now, the, the language makes it unclear whether it stopped 
which means I wonder if it just kept blooming and kept producing nuts. But get the idea. It's like everyone else has got a stick, and he's got this little thing that goes when he shakes it, right? Because it's got all these blossoms and blooms and nuts hanging on it, right? Which is going to be even funnier when he smacks a rock with the thing because he's smacking the rock with this little shaker he's got with him now. So this is what God says. He says, go get the rod. Now, according to number 17, that rod was put before the Ark of the Testimony. So we know that. That's 1710. And then he says, then talk to the rock. Now, any of you ever have God tell you to do something that you just know, even in obedience, you're just going to look stupid doing it? Is that enough reason for you, by the way, not to do it? Do you really think it's a good enough argument with God? But God, I'm going to look stupid. Can you imagine Jesus talking to the Father and going, I can't hang on the cross. It's going to really embarrass me. Hang naked in front of people. I don't want people to see that. But I've learned that the thing we argue with the most over, because the most important thing to God, please hear me, is your relationship with him. He created you to be with him. And he's been chasing after you ever since. Everything else is a distraction. It's something he sent to draw you closer. And so once he starts to chase after you because he loves you and he genuinely, truly wants you, the rock has already been struck. The last time that rock was struck, same place, by the way, I hope you know that. But what's interesting is when God had this happen the last time in Exodus, God says, I'm going to stand on the rock and then I want you to hit it. I want you to think about what that would look like. So there you are, you have your rod. You have this thing and you're carrying it around and he says, now I want you to take this thing and I want you to smack the rock. The problem is he's standing on it. So if I'm going to hit this thing, I'm going to have to hit him to do it. That's the point. So he goes, look it, I'm going to stand on the rock, I want you to hit it. Now what kind of person would actually do that, would be willing to stand there and take such a blow, but a God who's in love with you? Because these people are thirsty. They're going to die unless I do something. Strike the rock. Now, interesting, because the rock needs to be struck once. That's the point here. Now, please hear me. Because God already sets us up for a whole lot with this. Listen to this. I'm going to read now from from, uh, Exodus 17. That was the last time, and this is the verse. Verse 6, it says this. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people will drink. Listen, I will stand before you there on the rock, and then I want you to hit it. Psalm 78, and I'm going to read starting in verse 14. Listen to this as it reviews this. In the daytime, this is reviewing these events. In the daytime, this is God. He led them with a cloud, and at night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused water to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against them by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God and said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide meat for His people? Therefore, the Lord, the Lord heard this and he was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger against, uh, anger also came up against Israel. 
Because they did not believe in God. They did not trust in His salvation. That's the point. Yet He commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and He rained down manna for them to eat and gave them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by His power He brought in the south wind. They also, He said, He also rained meat on them like the dust feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and he, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were filled. He gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them, slew the stoutest of them, and struck the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in His wondrous works. Therefore, their days were consumed in futility, their years in fear. And when he slew them, then he sought them, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then, listen, they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High, their Redeemer. See, the whole point of this is, is that God's like, unless I do something punitive, you're not even going to know who I am. How sad of a position is that? That we would rather make up a God than actually allow God to be who He really is. Interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it tells us that they ate and drank spiritual food. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It doesn't surprise me why then Jesus would say in John chapter 7, verse 37, At the Feast of Tabernacles, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So here's the problem. The rock has been struck. Now we want you to talk to it. So maybe today you have given your life to Christ and you're thirsty. And perhaps it is bitterness that's sort of choking this out and drying you up. Maybe it's unrepented sin. David said, when I remained silent, my bones grew old and they dried up like the drought of summer. Maybe there's something God's saying give up and you won't. Let die, but you won't. You're trying to resuscitate something he's trying to remove. God says, now look at, once the rock has been struck, it never needs to be struck again. Now, I just want you to talk to me. Do you know why people talk a lot of times? Because what they just want is a relationship. Real honest communication is because you want a relationship. Because says, talk with me. Would you please talk with me? So this is in the New Testament concept. Back in the book of Isaiah, God would say, chapter 55, lo, or ho, or might I say, yo. All depends on where you're from. You who is thirsty, come and drink. You with no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then he says, why do you labor so hard for what is not bread and work so hard for what does not satisfy? He says, listen, listen intently to me. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen, incline, that your soul would live. There's a, you know what? Does that sound like a God of condemnation? Because that to me sounds like an invitation. God's like, I know you're thirsty. Would you come? I know you're hungry. Would you come? You're like, but I don't have. God says, I know. But I'm not good enough. God says, I know. But I, don't, I can't afford. I know. And God says, let me introduce you to grace. Grace is because I am kind, not because you deserve it. That's the point. So please hear me. God says, you know what? 
The rock only needs to be struck once. The problem is that any other religion where you're trying to get it right yourself by your own works, where the whole thing rests on you, well then you keep crucifying the God that only needs to be crucified once. And that's what Hebrews 6.6 6 says. If they fall away renewing them again, when they fall away by trying to do this by their own works, you can't be renewed in your old works because then they would crucify again and again the Son of God. That's the point. Jesus was crucified once for every one of us so that your sin and my sin and your filth and my filth could be permanently vanquished. Isn't that great news? How do I know it was enough? Because God had already set that in motion on Yom Kippur. How did we know that the priest, when he offered up the sacrifice for sins then, was accepted? He came out alive. Jesus took my sins and your sins. He nailed them to the cross. He bled and died. And then how do I know that it was accepted? He came out alive again. That's the whole point. Now, listen, no matter where you've come from, no matter what it is, he's come to rescue you from your sin and from your shame. The shame that comes from your own selfish ambitions and desires. But here's the problem. Moses now gets overcome by this bitterness and this anger, this anger that he's already seen shown a few times. And you know what happens as a result of that? He blows up. Verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Check. That was good. Moses in Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Check. That was good. And then he starts to spout off. How long? Here now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of, for you out of this rock? Moses never brought water out of the rock. That was God who did that. But now he's kind of looking and he's like, you know what? He's like, I am so frustrated with you guys. Do I have to keep doing this? But he's representing the Lord and God takes that very seriously. And it says that he struck the rock. How many times does it say according to this? Twice. You know what that means? He's like, hello, do I have to, do I have to bring water out of the rock for you? Bam! No water. Would that be a little bit humbling? It's like, right? Because Aaron going, hit it again. And out it comes. And that's the point. Is that God was going to let him fail in front of everyone. But he's going to pull and say, hey, 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 hey. What you did was really wrong. But what about all those times when God says, clear it away. Let me kill him. What's interesting is, Every time he did that, he knew how Moses was going to intervene so that the people could see Moses' broken heart for the people and his clear understanding of God's character. He set him up so that Moses could show what it really looks like. And now, unfortunately, Moses is in a place where he's really blown in. And, maybe, and that's the danger. No wonder why it tells us that a teacher receives a stricter judgment. Because you assume there are people, whether no matter how much I tell you I'm just a human being, people are like, oh, he's just being humble. No, I'm just being honest. But they're like, you know, and then they go, oh, that must be what God is like. Oh, I would love to act like that all the time. And if that's the case, don't hang out with me. But God just uses broken, foolish human beings. And the good news is that means that you're not disqualified. So listen to what the Lord says in verse 12, very much like Psalm 78. He says, because you didn't believe me. You didn't believe me? How did you not believe me? What part was Moses not believing? The patient part. The part that says, I still want to give him water. Yeah, they're messed up. We can agree. No, get him water. 
Just go talk to that rock. But what you didn't do is because you didn't trust me, you didn't set me apart like you were supposed to. That's what the word hollow means. You know what? Listen, if you don't trust God to be who he is, which is nothing like you, you will make him like you. And that is a major step down. And can I say, praise God, you're not God. And praise God, I'm not God. Because I would have fried us all a long time ago. I said, this is enough for heaven. Everyone's got a lot of space. But he's so not like us. And that's the beauty. I once was sharing the Lord with a gal, interesting enough, whose surname was Lord, ironically. Huh? And she said, you know, I've read about this atheist. And I always go, oh, here we go again. And she's saying, well, and it says that people that believe that they were made in God's image are 180 degrees wrong. Oh, that sounds so clever, doesn't it? In other words, people make God in their own image. And I says, you know what? You're right to some degree, which shocked her. This is because I think that's one of the biggest problems is that I, unless I'm in the word and reading who he really is, I'll make him more like me. And that is never a good thing. I'm like, I can tell you how I know he's not like me, because by this point, you'd be dead. <laughs> that's not necessarily the greatest gospel tactic, but I was young in the Lord and I was. Uh... Anyways. You didn't set me apart. You know, if you'd trust me, you would set me apart, but you didn't set me apart. This was the water of Meribah, verse 13. Because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and because God responded by saying, okay, you're not going in now. But the thing is, God already knew this, because back in chapter 14, when he says, the only people that are going to go into the promised land are Joshua and Caleb, he didn't mention Moses and Aaron then either. He already knew this was going to happen. So listen, let's move through the rest of this because here's the first thing, though, to conclude. Is there any bitterness in your life? Somebody that if they push that button one more time, you are going to flip out and smack the rock that you should be talking to instead. And you're yelling at God because this person's in your life. And they're needy. And every time they come, they're trying to suck off of you like any human being would without the satisfaction of Christ. And all you want to do is yell at him and tell him to, to leave you alone because you're so tired of it. Hey, the guy just lost his sister, appears to be. And the people are complaining and complaining and complaining. But God's like, you know, you know why I'm putting them in your life? Not to punish you because you are the only person on the block who knows me and you should look different. And this is one of the ways they will see you be different. By not open firing on them like everyone else would. Not bailing on them like everyone else would. Does that make sense? See, interestingly enough, when the Lord puts you in those rough situations, it's to show that you are different from the rest of the world. So walk with me as we close this up with the last bit. Because if that's not enough, verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh, that's where they are, to the king of Edom. Thus is your brother Israel. You know all the hardship that's befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt. We dwelt in Egypt for a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. We cried out to the Lord. He heard our voice, and the angel brought us up out of Egypt. There we were, out of Egypt, and now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Would you please let us go through? Now, please hear me. Before Israel was a nation, it was a person. And before that person was Israel, he was named Jacob. And before he was a person, he was a promise. 
You see, back in the book of Genesis, there's a woman who really wants to get pregnant, and she does. But she has a very, very difficult pregnancy. And as she has a difficult pregnancy, God actually responds, two nations are in your womb. Oh, they're fighting with each other, and they're never really going to agree. But the older will serve the younger. The younger one will actually be the victorious one in all of this. While that older one, that's Esau. And as he was born, they named him Harry and Red. Esau means Harry. Edom means Red. So he looked basically like a little Chewbacca. If, as he grew bigger, people probably took his picture or carved it on something and said it was the abominable something or it was Bigfoot or whatever. But we read he was a hunter. But who better to be a hunter? You know, like there's a deer. Oh, look, it's just one of us. Blah! He jumps up because he looks like one of them. Perfect camouflage. Jacob, on the other hand, he was a man of the tents. You know what that means? He cooked with mom. And the two of them did have issues. And I developed them, but it isn't for the point of this. And the point of this, now they're going back to their family ancestry. They're like, come on, brother. We're bros. You know, all I want to do is move forward. And it seems if they're following the pillar, that means that God's presence is saying this is the way to go. And somebody stands up and says, no way, man. You want to go through here, I'll fight you. Did you get that? Then like, but we'll only stay on the king's highway. Isn't that a cool term right here? Seems appropriate. All I want to do is stay on the king's highway. I don't want to go to the left or to the right. I don't want to be like Lucas in the, the Nepal situation or in the Himalaya situation. I want to be like, I want to stay, sorry Lucas. We don't want to stay on the road. I don't want to go to the left or to the right. And look at, we're not going to eat anything. Hey, let's face it, a couple million people will devastate a vineyard. Let's be honest. So we're not going to eat your food. We're not going to ra- ravage through your fields. We're just going to stay on the king's highway. And here's the point is that sooner or later, if you're going to go from the place of bondage and he pulls you through, he starts clearing out your life to show you that he's what you need and to take you to a place of fruitfulness, sometimes what you're going to realize is those people who were your bros aren't really your bros after all. Hey, they were totally your bros when you were robbing, when you were creeping, when you were, when you were, you know, when you were, you know, kind of dishing hash, and when you were kind of lighting up and you were cooking, they were your bros, and they would have taken a bullet for you, so is the case. But what's interesting is now that you want to walk the king's highway, they're like, no way. And can I just say, listen, the moment you start walking the king's highway, and I don't care if that's your boyfriend or your girlfriend, I don't care if that's your best friend, sooner or later they're not your bro anymore. And if, you, if they were really did care, they would actually be applauding you that you're making a good choice. I mean, what's funny is, hey, when I was actually beating people up and doing drugs and getting drunk all the time, we were great friends. And now that I'm not, you think I'm mental? How does that work? Has anyone ever told you that? They're like, what happened to you? You used to be so fun. Now I'm like concerned because I think you're losing your mind. Why? Because I'm living healthy? Yeah, I don't get it. But that's exactly what Peter taught us when it says that they think it's strange that you won't run into the same flood of dissipation with them. I've had parents call and say, you've brainwashed my child. And I said, I'm not the one doing the brainwashing. Jesus is, but he had a really dirty mind. So praise God. What are you doing to my kids? Nothing. Jesus is doing it all. Take it up with him. Please hear me. 
Because the, the only last thing after this is to watch Aaron die. But do you get it? Somewhere down the line, some of those bros, you've got to let die that relationship. And here's the difference. It isn't like you want to kill them. It's just you've got to stop leaning on them like you did before. Because you know what will happen? You have a little problem in your marriage or you have a little whatever and then you call them up and they're like, you're right, man. Let's just go and let's have a couple drinks and we'll sit around and the next thing you know, you've done a couple things and you've backtracked a little bit and now you're in a strip club or now you're in some place running from the law and now you are, you know, you started lighting them crack again and all of a sudden you're like, how did I get here? Because you leaned on your bro, bro. Or, you know, I'm a little lonely and I know that I, we broke up. But can I just call you? Do you want to just like come over and talk like any of us don't know what's going to happen next? Oh, no, 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 nothing's going to happen. And we're like, right, you really believe that? Because I don't. Has your heart really convinced you that well that nothing's going to happen, though every time this is done before it's happened the other way around? Why is this one different? You're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're just going to kind of hash out what? Let it die. The moment you start walking, and I pray you are with me, we start walking the king's highway, I just want to walk with Jesus. And they're like, no. I'm like, well, let's just make something clear. This is the most important thing in my life. And if you're standing against it, we are now opponents. And that is a really hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But you're like, I've known this kid since I was four. So I'm like, you know what? The more that you walk the king's highway the more they'll be actually challenged to walk it with you. But if you're like, yeah, you're right, whatever. Maybe I'll just hang out with you now. They'll never walk the King's Highway with you. Does that make sense? If that's where you're going to go. And I get this. So here's the two basic things of the whole chapter. I mean, the first thing is in the simplest sense that we need to let our bitterness that we would cling to die. And the second thing is we need to let those bros we would lean on die the way that we have them right now. Notice in verse 18, they say, you shall not pass through my land. Do you see that? This is my land. Funny, I'm walking the king's highway. Yeah, like, but you're stepping on my toes. Yeah, you know what? So what? So what are you telling me now? That like we're all going to hell? If you refuse Jesus, yes. Wow, you're so judgmental. I didn't write the book. You should read it. It's a, it's a love story. God is going to deal with Edom, by the way. Ezekiel 35, Obadiah verses, because it's only one chapter, so it's chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, Amos 1.11, very clearly address this. God is going to deal with it. And then we get to our last issue to close this up. How we dealt with bitterness with Miriam, we let it die, we let it die quick. We did no funeral. And then we saw how that was dealt with, because if we don't, we smack the rock we should talk to. Now we get to this side of things. And we realize that those that are our bros that shouldn't be our bros. And this is how it ends. The Lord spoke, speaks, spokes, huh, verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the, mount, by the border of the land of Edom. And he said this. Aaron shall be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land in which I've given them because of you rebelled. And this you is plural. You rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. It's interesting. He doesn't talk about the golden calf here. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring him up. Now, notice, by the way, Eleazar is going to be his, his replacement. He's going to be the next generation. And he doesn't remove a guy without having a replacement in hand. Did you notice that? You know what I think I recognize? Look at it. It says, strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. 
Do you know when Aaron retired? When he died. So if you want to ask me, when am I going to retire? I'm going to tell you the same. The day I get to walk up on the mountain and die there. Until then, if I go see now, pray for me. Paint a bunch of people on a wall and let me preach to it. But one way or another, I have no intent to retire. <laughs> and put someone in the, in the back with their hand raised. I'm like, I'm, that guy just raises it. Yeah! I plan on dying in this country, by the way. Next year, God willing, I'll become official citizen. You know what that means? I can be taxed. I'm, my whole life, hey, we cut the cord when we left. We cut the cord to come here and live with you, to be with you. That's my whole heart's desire here. So listen, you guys are going to go up. Three of you are going to go up. Two of you are going to come down. Aaron, Mr. Brings Light, Light Giver, is going to go up. The Helper, God the Helper, Eliezer, a term used more than any other in the description of the Holy Spirit by Jesus in John 14 through 16. The helper is going to come down now. So I want you to go up there. And I wonder what it would be like. Now, this is a little different than Miriam. Because Aaron's been the guy he stood next to through this entire endeavor. Do you realize that? He's mentioned 333 times in Scripture for a reason. In chapter 4, when God says, look at, you know what, throw that, that rod down. It's going to become a snake. Now pick it up. He goes, look at, Moses is like, you know what, I, I'm not a good speaker. And God says, I made your mouth. Who made your mouth? Like, and then finally, Moses finally gets flushed out. And he's like, you're right. I just don't want to do it. I don't want to talk. And he goes, well, your brother is a great speaker. And I'm sending him to you right now. That's verse 14. What's interesting is 13 verses later, God then tells Aaron, go meet your brother. So God's like, I'm, gonna, I, you know, I'm, I'm sending Aaron to you. I've sent Aaron to you. And then he's like, uh, Aaron, why don't you go? But through all of the showdowns, and I wonder if it would be like, can you imagine sitting up on the hill now? It's you and your brother. The last 40 years have been pretty crazy. And you'd say, it's been a crazy 40 years, hasn't it? And imagine all those showdowns we had with Pharaoh, you and me. The frogs and the lice and all those things people worshipped and how God took them all down. Remember those days? Remember how we parted the Red Sea? And there was you and me standing there side by side. Remember all that complaining side by side? Remember how we had that battle in Exodus 17 and you helped hold up my hands so that we could see victory down in the battle of Rephaim when Amalek, a perfect type of the flesh, goes after it. Remember how I left you in charge when I went up the hill? Remember how in Exodus 39 I, I had to, as weird as it was, clothe you and cleanse you and cover you and consecrate you for service. How weird that was for us to do that, but we can giggle about it now. Remember how in the next chapter how the Lord filled the tabernacle and neither of us could walk in because it was so full of Him. Do you remember that? Remember losing your sons, your two oldest, because they were more than likely wasted trying to take matters into their own hands with their fire pans. Remember that? Remember when God just caused that rod to bud just to make sure that everybody knew you were the man. It's been a pretty crazy, crazy 40 years, hasn't it, buddy? And you're looking at a guy you know isn't going to go back down the hill. 40 years is a long time. I'm looking out at this group of people. The majority of you haven't lived that long. You could see Aaron saying, 
hey, can I say a couple things before I die? Um, I'm really, really sorry about that time when we stood against you. I should have known better. I don't know why we were listening. Why I was listening to the big sis. What was I thinking? Oh, one other thing. Can I just make this clear before I die? Um, I didn't really throw gold into a fire and out came a calf. <laughs> that was a lie. You can see Moses going, oh, I know, bro. I know. You've never fooled me with that one, man. Would that be a weird moment? You're looking and you're going, hey, I'm going to come down from this mountain and I'm, I'm never going to see you again on this side. I'm going to take, just like God said, I'm going to take your clothes, I'm going to put them on your son. Would there be comfort in that if you were Aaron, just to know that at least it was going to carry on to your son? Is there something cool about that? Moses is going to walk down with his nephew. People saw, it says, in full congregation. So he's going to walk up with all three of them, and two of them are going to walk down. And you see him in the king's clothes, or in the high priest's clothes. And you're like, oh, he's down with Aaron? What, did they go to sacrifice his son? And then you walk down, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's actually Eleazar. He did the transfer. And we went from light giver now to helper. Now listen as we bring this to close. The problem with Esau was he was always a man of the world. He sold his birthright for stew. A good meal would cause him to cash in anything eternal. Maybe you know people like that. They're your bros maybe, and they're, maybe they're kind of cool with you being Christian until they discover you're a real one. And you're full on. And then they start yelling words like overboard and fanatic and fundamentalist and those things that really hurt. But they're true. They should be compliments. They just don't sound like compliments when they come out of their mouth. And they're people that love you. They may literally be your brothers. Let's say, hey, you know, you're really getting crazy with this stuff. I get why in Proverbs 18.24 it says, A man who has friends must first be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Moses has had to lean on this guy for 40 years. This was his mouthpiece. If we actually do it right, when there was a, the showdown with Pharaoh, Moses whispered into Aaron's ear and Aaron did all the big talking. And now there's no more of that. There's no more leaning on this guy like he used to. And within our fellowship, there will always be relationships where there's kind of a Batman and Robin, you know? There's the strong guy, and then there's the guy who kind of hangs out with him. But listen, I'm not telling you ditch your friends. I'm not telling you even ditch your bros. What I'm telling you is make it in your heart a plan to not die having to lean on them. Because when they went up the hill, Moses left them there. He left him there and he let him die because he had a whole new world and a whole new generation that's going to need to go in and Moses won't even escort him in himself. See, the law that Moses represents can only strike the lot, strike the rock. It can only strike the rock. It can't save. It can only strike. Please hear me as we go to prayer. My God loves you. He loves you so much that he doesn't even want good things in the way between you and him. It's just that simple. He wants things right in our heart. And the moment you start blaming your children, your wife, your husband, your friends, your job or whatever for not being full on for Jesus, God is a way of removing those things. Is that what you really want? 
We start playing games as if we're a victim. God's saying, look at I gave everything to be with you. Will you be with me, please? And we could say, but. And God's going to have to kill that. But this has been rough. Well, then let me be the one you lean on. But. I'm so bitter. Let me be the one that forgives through you. Because you know what unforgiveness is, right? It's drinking poison to spite your enemy. Is that what you want? I want to be free. I have family members who are still in bondage to unforgiveness and they are so unhealthy. And I'm free. The chains are gone. So let's wrap this up with this. If you're a Christian, God has a message simply for you today. Let me kill it. Let me kill your unforgiveness. Let me kill your foolish leaning. Let me set you free. Let me prepare you for a land of great fruitfulness. I have it for you. But if you're not sure you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus, and this is what makes Jesus different from any other religion, is we're not saying yes to a protocol. We're not saying yes to some form of just society. We're saying yes to a person, not a politic. A person who calls you by name, wants you, loves you, and enters the relationship knowing everything you have yet to discover about yourself, died on a cross to pay for it and rose again. And now he offers you new life. If you've not said yes to Jesus, I'm going to give you the chance to say yes. But first, I want to pray for the rest of us that today we walk out of here free. Will you pray with me? Oh God, you're so good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that there really was an honest time of mourning for Aaron because when it comes to people that we know, we care about, it does hurt. And Lord, I know having had to, having had to say goodbye to my own brother, one of them, how rough it is to let that go. But Lord, I don't want to live on top of a hill where there's only death waiting. I want to walk in the land of the living on the king's highway. And I pray right now, Lord, for myself and any person here who calls himself yours, that if there are people in our life that we have buddied up with, and I'm not talking about where we seek to minister and influence them, but where we have carelessly offered our heart for, to their influence. But they are clearly standing in the way of the king's highway. And they're saying, you can't pass through. I don't want you to come through. Well, then, Lord, be my guest to set that at naught. But Lord, I thank you that you're not a God of knots, you're a God of instead of. Thank you so much for what you have instead is real fellowship and great ministry, effective ministry, fruitfulness that we could never have just trying to, to stay with those that are just like Esau, caught into the world. 
where they're more excited about something that's temporary of the moment than they are about people saying yes to you. About their witness to the world around them. And they are much more quick to have a beer than open their Bible. Lord, please, please make us people who are genuine about who we minister to and who we befriend. And make that two very clear groups, Lord. That those that we open our heart to would be people of great influence. And they would be great influences in our life. But Lord, in the end, who we lean upon would be you. And Lord, I pray right now that if there be anyone or many who are in the bondage right now of bitterness, the moment we start to entertain that, we put ourselves in the audience of the enemy and we don't want to do that. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy and we don't want to listen. But we do. And we entertain thoughts that should never be in our hearts or minds. But today, Lord, you want to set us free. I pray for every marriage in this room that you transform it right now by creating perfect and absolute forgiveness that only you can do through us. I pray for every Christian friendship gone awry because of foolishness, because of folly. Set them free right now, Lord, I pray. And make them the people you intend. I pray, Lord, for any dishealth, Lord, and fellowship because of that. That today, Lord, you set us free completely to do that which you ordain. And so, Lord, we're here to listen. As a dialogue, Lord, speak to us now in our hearts. We would gladly let you slay anything that need be slayed. And while believers are here right now, listening to the Lord and hearing him speak to them. If today in this room you've never said yes to Jesus, or you're not sure if you ever have, I'm not talking about you joined a club or part of a church. I'm saying, have you ever really said yes to the God who died on the cross to pay for your sins? To pay for all your guilt, to suffer all your shame, and to raise again to give you a new life, one that is free and alive, vibrant, removed from the bondage of this world, from the bondage of sin, and wants to take you to a place of great fruitfulness and intimacy with Him. If you've never said yes to that gift, but today the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now, your heart might be racing, you're like, ah, but you know what God's asking is surrender to my love. And if that's you right now, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be my words. And I agree, let so be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. You know it and I know it. But if you really are willing to pay for everything on the cross for me, to suffer all my shame, to take all of my guilt upon yourself, and let it die there, well then, then I say yes. If that's You want to pay my bill, please do so. You want to suffer my punishment, please be my guest, do so. But thank you, that's only half the story. I believe that you not only died for me as Scripture promised, but you also rose again just as Scripture promised. So that I could have a new life. One set free. To be a new person who cares about people who isn't in bondage to my unforgiveness, to my own slavery, but now free to love others and free to live the life you ordain.
So I hand myself to you. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you really were willing to do all that, then I need to give you myself. So here I am. I'm yours now. Have me whatever way you want me. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer now, I ask you to say, Amen.